Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, good to be here this morning with a wonderfully exciting service this morning. And uh, very excited to share it with you. My name is Vaughan, if you, uh, if you haven't met yet. And it's a great privilege for me to be sharing with you this morning. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to be sharing on a very exciting topic. It's the genealogy of Jesus. And uh, before you get all excited, I'll just go to this next slide. The coronation of King Charles III. So recently, Britain and the Commonwealth um, crowned a new king after the death of Queen Elizabeth. Charles III, and his coronation was broadcast to the world, um, and he succeeds Queen Elizabeth to the throne because he is of a royal lineage. And you can see that royal lineage there, belonging to particular families that go back hundreds of years. And... Um, and who they or who people believe have been given the divine rule or the divine right to rule here on earth. Um, his coronation cost somewhere between 50 and 100 million great British pounds. And as questionable as all that may be, what is true is that when kings and queens take the throne, they usually announce themselves and their new kingdom through various fanfare and proclamation. And this is true even today. Sharing and promoting the good news of their reign through various forms, such as in their paper money, and their stamps, and their coin, and their public services, and even on some of their consumer goods. Proclaiming the good news of a new king and a new kingdom is not a modern idea. In fact, the word gospel, meaning good news, has been used to proclaim the coming of a new king and a new kingdom for many, many centuries. In Greek, the word gospel is called euangelion. And the euangelion was made famous by Alexander the Great. And he announced his kingdom, or the kingdom of Greece, and the Hellenistic worldview um, as it expanded over Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And he was some 350 years before Jesus. Of course, when the Romans showed up, they had their own gospel. In the ruins of an ancient city in Turkey called Priene, they found this inscription in a temple that had been dedicated to Caesar Augustus. Citizens of Priene, since divine providence has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of all mankind, bestowing on us Augustus Caesar as savior of the world, for he has put to an end war and brought perfect peace. And by the advent of his birth, he brought the gospel, the euangelion of peace to all mankind. For that reason, the Greeks of Asia have on this day declared that never will another gospel surpass the gospel that was announced at his birth. He is now not only Lord of the empire, but Lord of the earth and of the calendar and of time itself. Little did they know <laughs> what was coming. But what's important to recognize is when, when the gospel writers um, declare the gospel of Matthew, the euangelion of Matthew, 
or the gospel according to Mark, or the gospel according to Luke, they are making a very subversive statement against the gospel of their, of their culture, against the empire of the Greeks and the Romans and the Babylonians and everyone around them, against these powerful kings and kingdoms. And in the political and cultural context of their time, the gospel writers were essentially announcing there is a new king, and he brings a new kingdom. And of course, we know it's not going to be the same as what you think it is. It's not going to be what Alexander brought. It's not going to be what Augustus Caesar brought. Now, if we turn to Matthew's gospel, uh, we want to look at what was Matthew declaring about this kingdom? What was he trying to bring across? Every gospel writer, every biblical writer had an agenda that they wanted to bring across. They wanted to share something with the people that were reading. So let's try and understand Matthew's agenda as we look at the first few verses. And we'll just read the first verse. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In fact, we probably just stop there because that kind of tells us everything we need to know about Jesus, right? Everything we need. We don't actually need to read the whole rest of the passage, which seems rather long and boring. So why is it there? Why did Matthew put this in? What was he trying to bring across? Well, I'm going to read this genealogy, and I know that you're all terribly excited, <laughs> but I promise you it's going to be worth it. All right. So here goes. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon. Nashon is the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jerome, Jerome the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. What an interesting text. So Matthew goes out of his way to point out the 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. And he's making a point that says this is to show that Jesus is therefore right in line to be the next era of history, right? He's setting him up. He's saying this was always planned. He's part of a chosen lineage. His, his family has a, has a divine story. 
but you must also remember that Matthew was a Jewish writer. And so if Matthew points out anything on the surface, that's not the main point. That's just what they call the Peshat, the superficial reading of Scripture. But he puts something else in here. Because Jewish writers generally like to bury their truth. They like to create little snippets for us to find. And so let's look a little deeper. Because while Matthew seems to be trying to prove to a Jewish audience that Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, and we see all the little characters in the opening lines, we also see that Matthew writes possibly one of the worst genealogies in Jewish history. Because he includes people in there that make the story look very bad. Most Jewish genealogies were aimed at trying to establish a person's pedigree. The glory of their story. Their credibility. But also, as a patriarchal culture, they presented a paternal lineage. And so most did not include women. And yet Matthew includes five women in this genealogy. With very embarrassing stories. Why does he do that? Now there's something in Jewish writing that's called a remez. So Peshat is when we read the scripture and we see what's on the surface, right? Remez is when the writer puts something into the script, into the text. That reminds us of something somewhere else. You must remember that uh, the Jews knew their Torah. They knew their scriptures. If there was a reference somewhere to something that looked out of place, they knew someone was trying to make a point. That reference that's out of place means that they need to go and look there and see what does it say. A little bit like Jesus saying, the poor will always be with you, right? We all know that that actually comes from Deuteronomy 15. And he wants us to go and read Deuteronomy 15 and see what it actually says. In the same way, Matthew is doing this. He's putting five women into the genealogy. And people say, why did you do that? You're making him look bad. But that's the point. He wants us to go and look and see what do these five women have to do with Jesus? What is their story? Why did he give us these little snippets? So let's look at that. In verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zorah, whom, whose mother was Tamar. Now Tamar was the, was the wife of Judah's firstborn son, Ur. And Ur was a wicked man, and God put him to death. Very sad. But according to Deuteronomy 25, if a man uh, passed away, his wife would be looked after by his brother. And Ur's brother was Onan. Judah only had three sons, so Onan looked after Tamar, and he was supposed to help her bear a child, but he refused, and so the Lord put him to death as well. And then Judah was afraid, and he would not give his third son, Shelah, to Tamar, because he was scared the Lord might put him to death as well. And so he didn't look after her. He didn't allow her to, to, to uh, fall pregnant, and he didn't allow her um, to be able to have an inheritance. Because at that time, a widow without a male child would not inherit. And so she was vulnerable. So she pretended to be a prostitute so that Judah would make her pregnant. And she would bear then Perez. And when Judah found out, he said to her, you are more righteous than I. Because
because he knew that she was vulnerable and that he had not protected her as he should. And so this scandal is included in the genealogy of Jesus. And Tamar is now in the line of Jesus. Verse 5, Salmon is the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You know the story of Rahab? It's in Joshua. It's a wonderful story of the fall of Jericho. Rahab was a Canaanite and a prostitute who helped the Israelite spies when they were uh, um, uh, surveying Jericho. And even though she was a Canaanite, she feared the Lord. She knew he was coming. She knew of his great deeds. And she asked him to spare him, spare her. And so they made an oath with her. And when Jericho fell, they spared her and her family. And so Rahab, a Canaanite woman and a prostitute, is now also included in the line of Jesus. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth's story is set in the time of Judges, a time of rising and falling, of sin and redemption. And in the middle of the period of Judges, there's the story of Ruth, a picture of what it looks like to be a, a healthy community. But Ruth was a Moabitess who married the son of an Israelite couple, Elimelech and Naomi. But when Elimelech died and her own husband died, she became impoverished along with her mother, Naomi. And Ruth was then not only an orphan and a widow, vulnerable and in poverty, but she was also a Moabitess and a foreigner, unable to enter the assembly of the Lord for ten generations. And yet, this Moabitess is in the line of Jesus. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Such a euphemistic way of putting it. Bathsheba. We see her story in Samuel. And we all know the story of Bathsheba, a married woman, coerced or possibly even raped by David, and who became the mother of Solomon. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. The virgin who becomes pregnant before she is married to her betrothed, Joseph. So what's the common thread here? Matthew is highlighting certain characters who are in some way known as mamzers. Now a mamzer in the Hebrew Bible and Jewish law, a mamzer is an estranged person. It is a person who is born as a result of certain forbidden relationships, according to Torah, or incest, or is the descendant of such a person. And, of course, it's not only these five women who have these dodgy stories, right? Who have these difficult-to-understand stories. These shameful periods in, 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 in the history. They were preceded and followed by many failings of many of the men in that lineage. But Matthew's using it to ensure that we don't make heroes out of Jesus' ancestors. And so he shines a light on their stories and the brokenness of Jesus' line. The interesting thing is Matthew is highlighting that Jesus himself was a mamza. And mamza was also used more broadly to refer to those outside of society. Those who were not quite good enough. And so as he announces that Jesus is a new king, bringing a new kingdom, he's also saying that 
the outsiders will be inside. And the vulnerable will be looked after. But Jesus' kingdom was so radically different. So radically different from earthly kings before him that even the expectations of the Jews themselves, that even John the Baptist was confused. See, John had been heralding that Jesus, this new king, would come and he'd bring judgment and winnowing of the threshing floor. And he would, he, his belief was that, that Jesus would somehow overthrow these current kingdoms that were besieging Judea. And so Matthew 11, we see when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is going to come? Are you, the, are you the right guy? Or should we expect someone else? You see, he was expecting judgment. He was expecting a king to come with power. And he wasn't quite sure if he'd got it right, had he anointed the right person. And Jesus replies to him, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, Jesus says to him, I am doing exactly what I have been called to do. I am that king. I am not like the king you think I should be. You see, our brokenness does not exclude us from the kingdom. Jesus welcomes our brokenness. It was part of his story, and he knows that it's part of our story. He's not looking for the glory of your story. He's calling us with all of our brokenness and everything that makes us feel not so good enough. And he says, I am a new kind of king. I did not come for power. I did not come for wealth. I came for the broken. Come, live under my reign. You are in and I will make you whole, and I will heal your brokenness. You see, in his kingdom, the orphan and the widow, the single mother, the single father, the poor, the foreigner, all those that are supposedly outside are no longer outside. They are at the center of his heart. And so too, when we look at our city, and we think about those people who are on the outside of our city, on the fringes of our society, on the fringes of our culture, on the outside of our community, socially, economically, historically, those oppressed, those far from opportunities, those with dysfunctional schools, those living in violent communities, those with homes that have been lost to fire and flood, those who live with trauma every night, raped, abused, neglected, they are not outside of God's story. They are inside. They are part of his story. They are at the center of his kingdom. And he wants to bring healing and he wants to make them whole. He wants to bring them into his line because his line has always been a broken line, full of broken people. And we who carry his image, we are the ones that declare this gospel, this euangelion of a new king and a new kingdom who brings the outsiders in, who cares for the vulnerable. We are those image bearers. We're not just his stamps or his coins or his mailboxes 
We're his children, in his line, part of his family. We're called to look like him, to love those who do not fit in, to care for those who are not cared for, to represent and be ambassadors for this king. Matthew's introducing us to this euangelion of Jesus, to this new kind of king with a new kind of kingdom. And we get to participate in this kingdom, to become part of Jesus' line, and to share this euangelion with our city. And so now, as a continuation, I'm going to call on Jackie. And Jackie is going to facilitate some testimonies of just how this euangelion is proclaimed in some of the lives of some of our precious family. Thank you, Jackie. All right, so we've asked three people from our own village, our own church community here, who are finding different ways to work out this upside-down kingdom that Vaughan's been telling us about. So the, the beauty of the history and of the theology and the stories of Jesus um, we wanted to make really practical and make practical in ordinary people. Um, but I'm always a bit nervous doing this because, first of all, we don't really like talking about this giving thing, sharing our wealth. Um, in, in Christian circles, it's like, oh, you mustn't let the right hand know what the left hand's doing. Or I don't know, maybe it's the other way around. But anyway, your hands aren't supposed to know what the other one's doing. And, and so we feel a bit like, oh, we don't want to be boastful. You know, we, we quite okay about sharing testimonies, you know. I prayed for someone, or God gave me this opportunity to bring the gospel to someone. We've, we've, got, we've worked out that when we do that, we're not boasting, we're giving God the glory. But when we talk about, yeah, God like, inspired me to you know, buy someone a house or give someone loads of money, then it can sound as though we're being boastful. So I want you to just put aside that cultural norm today, because we really do need to talk about it, because that's exactly how God's kingdom gets worked out. Okay, so... Hopefully we're going to skirt around that very safely today and give God the glory. And none of our three speakers are going to feel as though they are being seen as being boastful. Can I have your agreement with that? Good. And the second thing that I also get a bit nervous about is I don't want us to go, oh, well, that's great for JP. He's amazing. You know, or Pierre who's coming up, or Haley, oh, they're awesome, but not me. Like, you know, I don't want you to disqualify yourself because this is... Very intentional, ordinary people who are serving an extraordinary God. And that's why we can tell these testimonies. So if you can just hold on to those two, two truths so we don't fall into the traps of those holes. All right. So with me on stage here, I've got JP. And um, I've given our, our people who are going to share five minutes because I know our service is packed. And the third thing I wanted to say is if, if there's anything about their story please follow up. If there's anything that inspires you about their story, please go and chat to them because they've only got five minutes, okay? So it's going to feel surface level, but hopefully it will inspire you to go and hear more about what God's doing in their lives. So JP, welcome. It's great to have you up here with us. And our first question is I've asked JP to just give us very teensy a, a description of, of your business and, yeah, and the work that you do. Okay, so... I have a business called Olive Grove, for those who don't know, um, we employ about 10, 11 people, and the business is really a, a sales and distribution business. Uh, we 
if uh, you like nougat and uh, lovely dairy products like olives and olive oil, then um, I've got stuff for you. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a small business Great. that's been running 18, 20 years. Yes, and how many people do you employ? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, 10, oh, 10, 11. Sorry, I missed that. Okay, 10 or 11. So I know that your faith in Jesus has really shaped the way that you interact specifically with your employees. And I've asked you this morning maybe to share two or three short stories of how knowing and walking and following Jesus has shaped the way you engage with your employees. Yeah, so I think um, well, one of our, the Ten Commandments is uh, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that's really been something that's inspired us, Joey and myself, to uh, reach out to to those who you know have been particularly previously disadvantaged in and we've had the opportunity through our business um, to bless people um, you know through the business and yeah you know we've had you know I've got two two of them have been with us for you know most of those 20 years 18 years Warren and Babalo um, and there are others that have um, that have been with us a long time. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we, we met Babalo and she was a young woman with four kids already um, when, we, when she started with us. Um, and she was in a shack and um, yeah, you know, she went through some really terrible times, um, you know, floods and fires and people breaking in and, you know, the horrors of that. Um, and we, at that time, we just prayed with her to bring her into a, a, a place where she had a, a safe home, safe community, um, and that things would be very different for her. And it was a long time before, um, yeah, you know, I really held on to that prayer. Um, and yeah, she came up for an RDP house, um, and you know, she she came to us one day and said, you know, she's got a she has to pay, can't remember, but for a little bit extra, you know, I think it was 4,000 rand extra, she could get a two-bedroom um, RDP house. And, you know, she was, you know, yeah, you know, we were able to help her in that way. And we, you know, just, um, yeah, helped her like that. And, and now she's in her RDP house in Delft, much safer, um, you know, from where she was, not the not the best of places, but um, it's you know it's certainly a, a long way from where she was. Um, and then another story that I, you know, uh, as you asked me to just uh, share is um, you know, how we've helped is um, you know one of my other guys, Eddie, and 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 another guy, Dennis. Um, they were both stuck in with black being blacklisted. Um, and yeah, not able to buy houses or um, yeah, which is their, their desire. And so yeah, we, we at different times we've helped them consolidate their debt, pay their debt off and um, get off the blacklisting. And um, Dennis has been able to buy a house. Um, Eddie we're still working on. But um, yeah, you know, just praise the Lord for answered prayer. That's yeah. beautiful, Jason. Yeah, so those are just two cases. I had tea and coffee with um, JC and Joey just in preparation, and 
I know there's stories about family members with saddle business that's emerged and there's thinking about um, how to be sensitive to the racial history and injustice around that that you guys do and driving lessons and there's multiple other stories that we just don't have time for today. But what I really wanted to highlight is, is, is JP and Joey are making this decision in their everyday influence and just saying, okay, Jesus, what, what are you calling us to do here? And we, we really want to honor that and appreciate that. Thanks yeah. so much, JP. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Pierre, can I ask? Yeah, can you help here? And Pierre, can you get ready? Where's Pierre? Okay, Pierre. Welcome, Pierre. Um, can everyone see us? I feel like I'm kind of half sitting with my back to you guys. Um, yeah, Pierre, welcome. <laughs> yeah. Let's just dive straight in. And the first question we ask you is to tell us about justice and chickens and, <laughs> and what that means to you. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Jackie. Thank you. Um, yeah, when I was at university, we used to go door to door. Um, our lives was transformed by Jesus and we had to share that with people but in the last few years I've been using chickens as a means to get into, uh, invited into communities and to support people who already have chickens and uh, their family, them and their families' livelihoods. Um, in the chicken world you have the, the haves, those that have been breeding chickens for 50 years, got the best DNA successful businesses, but that knowledge is, is really in a bubble. Um, it's not easy for them to connect to underprivileged people. And on the other side, you have the have-nots, um, the small farmers. Um, and yeah, so I'm using chickens to connect with both of those groups of people, um, to, to connect with them, to teach them what we've learned, to help them to get access to the best DNA, which is equated to the best production quality. Um, and so I go coop to coop, now not door to door, building relationships, influencing people. Um, and yeah, in the long term, um, I think yeah, we're just trying to further, uh, the pipe dream is livestock justice. Um, so we're asking the question, um, why do the poorest of the poor not have access to the best DNA? And there's lots of reasons for that, but if we don't understand those reasons, they're all co-producing factors to the mess that we're in at the moment with the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Um, and if we can understand those reasons better, we can start to turn them around. Mm, beautiful. And just to clarify, Pierre, is this your full-time job or is this something that <laughs> you... <laughs> how does this fit in your life? No, it's not. It's uh, not your full-time, <laughs> okay. So this is... It's my shepherding job. Yes, yes, all right. So, and how did God, how did your faith in Jesus lead you to this space? Yeah, I'll try and keep this short. <laughs> um, um, so during Jared's gap year, he worked with communities up in KZN Many of them had chickens, and when he came back, we, we got some hens. We want, he insisted on that. And uh, um, 
we, yeah, we started contacting both uh, readers and building relationships with them. They don't really share stuff and keep stuff to themselves. And so we paid someone who lectures at Pretoria University to mentor us, teach us stuff. He's got a really successful business. And then we got some purebred chicken. Jared was like really surprised what the difference between that great chicken and the chickens that communities had. Um, and so we wanted to, the first idea started was to try and help people to get access to, to better quality chickens. But it's also about teaching and learning from both sides. Um, and then Bernadette came to preach at our church about rebuilding the broken walls of our city. And, our, and I was really touched by the 84% unemployment in, in Freyfeld. Um, so I went to speak to Bernadette afterwards and finally she later on invited me to speak to some of the pastors in the community and she built relationships with the people in the community um, around there. Yeah, the biggest challenge for me came when I was reading this book <laughs> that there's a hole in our gospel. Um, I was deeply impacted by the, the continued growing gap between the haves and the have-nots in our world and, and the challenge that that, that is. Um, but we've just been dreaming about all of this and, and talking about getting Nigerian dwarf goats and Tanya said, no, 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 we can't do that. And the very next day as I was reading this book, um, chapter that talks about the staff and using the staff in your hands, there's a little insert about lady that had used chickens to support world vision and that they were branching out to Nigerian dwarf goats. So it was just such a, a God moment, um, but it's got a lot of, of humor and that that really just, um, yeah, so the central idea of this book is that we should not just be um, um, concerned about people's spiritual transformation, but the what they have to eat and the if we miss if we only worried about spiritual transformation and not the whole person then we're missing a big part of the gospel so it was a key moment for me when I was deeply challenged to be obedient to the Lord um, and yeah to do what he laid on our hearts Pierre can you show us that book just so we can all get a sense yeah don't read it uh. Dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> There's a warning that comes with this book. You'll you'll end up partnering with the kingdom, right? Um, Richard Stearns, I think. Yeah. The whole in our gospel. Great. Thank you for that. And last of all, I know that um, your journey following Jesus' footsteps in this way, it's not easy. And I know there's no trodden pathway for you. Um, so I know you've faced a lot of challenges and confusions and despair sometimes. How how has God been yeah, sustaining you through all of this. Um, yeah, ideas are great, <laughs> but the practical execution has many hardships. Um, chickens get sick, um, and yeah, getting a sustainable business model and all of that takes a lot of endurance and stripes on your back. Um, in the early days, I got a quite a bad chicken disease and had to cull a lot of the stock. Um, 
struggling to sell chickens and it takes time to build relationships. Um, given a lot of chickens to giant grey frauns and just came to the realization that challenges are just so much bigger. It's not the problem that you think you're facing, it's the conditions sustaining those problems. You know, when you see chickens drinking water flush from a toilet and didn't know why they're getting sick. And so I was just like really ready to give up and think this is just a crazy idea and feel overwhelmed by it all. And a, and a guy came to buy came to pick up chickens for his son and took him around my little pipeline and at some stage he looked me sternly in the eyes and he said to me, the Lord was very clear in his word, Zechariah, um, do not despise the days of small beginnings. And he prayed for me and, and when he left there I just really felt that God had, God had um, heard my high cries. Um, there's other times when I, yeah, I'd run out of space, my neighbor was selling his his house and he couldn't use his coop anymore. My other neighbor was complaining and didn't realize he was really upset about my chicken. So I, I had to I had this idea of building a soundproof chicken coop and I had to dip <laughs> I had to dip bales into a bath. I'd just come back from Builder's Warehouse and and I was just down because I'd seen the prices of parts and I just thought this is a stupid idea and I just gives us up sitting in my car thinking, Lord, what, what, this is just crazy. And I walked around the back of my car and there was, there was a guy at my gate asking for food and he had tied a plastic bath on the chassis of a trolley and I bought his bath for 50 rand. <laughs> um, so just moments when God knows that you uh, are, are a very, Pastor Devon has been a great support and sounding board and challenging, you know, you need someone to keep you accountable um, and ask the hard questions, so thank you for, for that, and yeah, so God has, God has just at various key moments spoken, and that uh, gets me going. Beautiful, thank you, Pierre. Guys, you really need to go and take Pierre for coffee and hear the ins and outs of God's fingerprints all over this, and be inspired that crazy dreams that seem too big are totally possible and God even sustains those dreams along the way. Thank you so much, Pierre, and bless you as you go. Thank you. And last but not least, Haley is going to join us up here. Welcome, Haley. Haley and her husband Alistair are, are newish <laughs> to our yeah, it's been here for about a year at um sixth floor. So I think people are really looking forward forward to getting to know you a bit more. Yeah? Great. So Haley, um, yeah, tell us a bit about this NGO that you've co-founded called ICU. Okay, so we called ICU, not the ambulance or the hospital, but ICU, and I'll tell you why a little later on. Um, my co-founder and longtime friend, um, we were frustrated that young people, especially young women on the Cape Flats, um, we're not accessing and connecting to opportunity. And um, we started over coffee trying to find why. And then um, we realized that um, mentoring, we had been mentored 
um, and not a formal mentoring program, but we had been mentored at hard times or during hard times by older, more experienced women. And we wanted to do this. Um, and this was in line with our core belief that every person is created with value and worth and a purpose. And so we started the exploration as to how do we nurture young women on the Cape Flats, their value, their worth, and um, so that it's reflected back to them to enable them to step into their purpose. And so we, we run um, a mentoring program um, on the, on, in schools on the Cape Flats, and it's a three-year journey. Uh, so it's grade 10, 11, and 12. And our name, ICU, because when we did our pilot, we didn't have a name. And um, we went in, and one of the participants in our first early program said she felt seen for the first time. And you know, that was our name, ICU. And how, tell us a bit about how God's hand led you to this, because I know this isn't, wasn't what you started off with, I'm going to leave school and become this. There's no. <laughs> God's no. had you on um, a journey. So this has been a journey of faith. Um, I don't, my partner and I don't have a background in social development. Um, we studied law. We thought we could impact the world that way. Um, and that didn't work out. And so it's been a wrestling with God because we didn't plan to start a nonprofit either. Um, how do I um, show up as Jesus' hands and feet in the South African context? And more than that, how do I live out my faith as a reality in the South African context during this time? And um, the, the advantage, <laughs> the blessing, because my partner and I had no experience or qualification, is that we actually had to, we had no choice but to trust God's leading. Where he led us, to the schools he led us. And um, I think it's been a grappling for me um, because there's, a, there's no control. Very often <laughs> you don't have control. And it's been relinquishing not only that control that Jesus knows what he's doing, but also control over the vision I had for my life. And then relinquishing that to his vision out. And that's not always the nicest of things. So I haven't quite arrived. There are days I, see, I sit and think, I could be sitting in a corner office comfortably. But then it's again a surrender to God's will and his love and that he actually knows best, that he has the bigger vision. And um, one of my husband's favorite songs is by Alvin Slaughter. It's called That's When. And two of the, the lines in the chorus says, what's that you have in your hand? I can use it if you're willing to lose it. And so I, have very, I had very little in my hand to start off with, not having a background. And there are many days I still don't have much in my hand. Um, so it's trusting God that he will use what I have and um, through gritted teeth sometimes believing that God is who he says he is. Beautiful. I love that, what you have in your hand. And that resonates with what Pierre was mm. talking about at the start. So yeah. we receive that. We receive that. And I mean, you talked about gritted teeth and sometimes it being hard. And I know, you know, sort of not having a set income and as you say, not always being able to control stuff and obviously working in communities that are already under stress and experiencing trauma. How do you, how's God been your sustainer in this season? For anyone working in the nonprofit sector, um, for those who aren't Christ followers, I don't know how they do it without God. Um, especially after COVID, 
um, the enormity of the need and the resources required will, will overwhelm you if you if you actually don't have Jesus to keep you going. And um, a message that is well that has been imparted by by friends, but is but is sort of a theme that has come through um, to, for me is to be still and know that He is God. And the way that this has worked out is trusting God for today and then trusting him for tomorrow and the next day and also just trusting that he will um, provide. This was his vision that he birthed in our hearts and more importantly, these young women are his creation and um, he has provided, not in the way I would always like um, and so the recent weeks have felt like a non-stop roller coaster ride with Jesus um, and I don't always agree on his timing, um, <laughs> but I have a little picture. He has the big picture and I have a little snippet. And so it's in the waiting and groaning, and God is slowly making what was impossible for our young women possible. And I'll give you an example. Um, the, uh, for, for, and I don't have time to explain the nuance of the Cape Flats, but for many of our girls, matric is seen as the end. And because their parents don't have matric, and so um, part of the program is trying to see them, be, trying to get them to see beyond that. And to date, we have 67 girls in our program. We have eight uh, alumni who are in um, tertiary institutions from Stellies, UCT, UW, CPUT. So that's a big thing because most of those young women are from our harder schools. Well, the harder, harder environments, they're from Anova Park. But then um, one of the other, my favorite stories, I interviewed a grade nine young woman. She had just moved from Worcester to Anova Park, so a hard move. She was quite shy, but there was a quiet confidence about her. And I thought, okay. You know, because we also believe that we interview the girls, we have a profile, but Jesus knows what he's doing, so the girls that are on our program is meant to be on our program. And um, she went on to be the head girl of a school. And then standing last year and watching her give her speech at valedictory, I know how hard that was for her because she could never speak, even in a group of eight. And so God is slowly changing what is possible and in the process is changing me. Um, beautiful. Can we receive that? We serve a God who changes what is impossible and changes us. If you are inspired by this story i want to invite you on the 20th of june the mercy and justice team we're holding our next seeking shalom gathering and we've asked Haley we, and annie as well there's annie both of them because of um youth month to be for, to telling us stories about their ministries but in more in depth than just five minutes so you can come and hear more about that thank you so much Haley. right you can go down and as bevan comes up just to say i we're not, we're not calling you to start chicken justice and <laughs> necessarily leave your job and start an NGO. We're just trusting that there are going to be seeds of, of what God's doing in these stories that are going to resonate with what God's doing in you and that each one of us carries something in our hand. What is it, Lord, and how do you want me to use it? And we hope that that's been stirred in you today. Thank you, Jackie. Wow. Um. Jullie moet gaan kyk hoe lyk PSO Woenders hoor. Die goed lyk soos klein vol strysse. And wow, what, what, what JP is doing, to be honest, you know what, JP has redefined for me what mobility means. 
Um, and you gotta check out what Haley's doing. She's got a website, eh? Got a website. Um, have a look at what they're doing. You know, when, when we hear stories about what Jesus is able to do through us, a lot of the time it leaves us with a with a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. And we often leave it just there. Vaughan has described for us um, a kind of a dichotomy of what the kingdom of heaven is like versus the empire of the world. And, and the kingdom of heaven doesn't operate in the way that the empire of the world operates. You know, when, when the world looks at some of the things that we engage with, helping somebody to buy a house and then not actually having any, any further gain from that. Rearing chickens and giving them away. Helping people change the, 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 the trajectory of the lives of their children and not being able to receive anything back in it to the world that is foolishness. But those are the ways of the kingdom. We are called to do things to invest in things, to engage in things that to the world looks like they have no value to us. But this is what God calls us into. He calls us into these spaces to bring the reality of the kingdom into those spaces. And so this morning, I, don't, I wouldn't want us to walk away from, from this engagement with a warm, fuzzy feeling. We, we plan to end off our, our time this morning with, with some corporate prayer, but we are watching the time and we do want to direct our attention to what's going on on the stage and we want to spend some time there as well. So I'd like us just to take a moment just to meditate on what Jesus might have said to you today. You know, one of, the, one of the ways in which Jesus describes the kingdom is he describes it like a mustard seed. Something small. Something seemingly insignificant. And so when we think about, wow, what JP is doing, what Pia is doing, that sounds amazing. I can't do that. But you know what? God might have given you a mustard seed idea or a thought this morning that might to you seem insignificant and small, but in his hands he's able to do so much more. Just take a moment to meditate on that. Micah says to us in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, that very well-known verse. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly 